This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 10th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Schultz up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from news writer Dennis Normile about the social life of robots. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Schultz, an intern for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on new innovations in prosthetics. Amputees have been able to control movement of prosthetic limbs before now, but there have been problems with this technology. For example, it crushes things. People don't have the ability to judge how strong their prosthetic is. What's behind some of these issues, David? Well, as you mentioned, there's a number of problems in prosthetic technology. One with, as you said, how tightly you're grasping something. There's really no feedback. There's no sense of touch. And in this paper, researchers describe an expanded ability to feel with a prosthetic hand. What do they mean by feel in this context? Well, they've equipped the prosthesis with a number of pressure sensors, and they wire those into a computer. The computer then processes all the inputs from these various pressure sensors and then sends impulses directly into the nerves in your arm. And by doing that, they're able to sort of simulate a realistic sense of touch. And when you say they have a sense of touch, do they know they're touching something? Can they tell what it is? What's the kind of feedback they're getting? Yeah, they're getting more realistic feedback than anything that they've done before. They're getting some sense of texture, general shape of the object. It's certainly not equivalent to the hands we're born with, but it's a step in the right direction. What kinds of new tasks can people wearing these prosthetics do? The example they gave in our article was uh, applying toothpaste to a toothbrush and removing the stem from a cherry without smashing it into pulp. <laughs> so another paper mentioned in the same story describes a better way to integrate these types of feedbacks from prosthetics. What's new about that technique? With these new ones, they've taken the prosthesis itself and they've attached it to a titanium plate, which they've embedded directly into the bone. And before, you had wires running 
down the length of the arm and jostling or bumping them would sometimes knock them out of position. But with these, they're running them along the bones and there's less chance you'll disrupt them. Okay, so is any of this new integration or the new sensation heading to the clinic anytime soon? Probably not anytime soon. There's some concerns with how quickly these things operate and whether they can keep up with real time, but it's certainly progress. Next up, we have a story on the spread of prehistoric art. It's long been thought that the first time a human painted an animal onto a rock wall, it was in Europe about 39,000 years ago. But new evidence from Indonesia suggests that might not be the case. Where in Indonesia are we talking about? We're talking about an island called Sulawesi, and this is actually in the southwest corner of that island. And what about earlier cave art in Africa, in Europe, and now in Indonesia? How do these sites differ, and what are the timelines? So the earliest art was, in fact, in Africa, but the art they found there is mostly simple, um, just geometric patterns and things like that. There's very few animals, if any at all. Then we have simultaneously, just about in Europe and Indonesia, the appearance of what researchers call symbolic art, which is the the cave paintings we think of of animals and human-shaped creatures. The earliest uh, art in Africa that we see was about 78,000 years ago. The new art in Indonesia and in Europe dates from about 35 to 39,000 years ago. The paintings in Indonesia have been known about since the 1950s. What happened to make the researchers take a fresh look, and, and how do they do it? The art caught their eye because they knew that humans were living in this region of Indonesia around 35,000 years ago. And so when they saw the cave paintings, they knew it would put it on par with what we saw in Europe. And how did they date these things? It's very hard to date things that are inorganic. Right. They actually relied on what they call cave popcorn, which is the formation of very small stalactites or stalagmites that crop up as minerals deposit on the walls. And what they did was they took a saw in and they they cut out samples of this cave popcorn and then they used radio dating using uranium isotopes to date how old the cave popcorn was on the walls. And using that, they could deduce approximately how old the paintings underneath were. If these dates are right, what does it say about the history of this kind of painting? Did it arise independently in multiple places? Has it traveled the world in a specific path? There's competing theories about that. It could have arisen independently in multiple places, but the more popular theory is that actually when humans migrated out of Africa around 60,000 years ago, they had the capacity for symbolic art then, and they've traveled to Indonesia and Europe since that time. Lastly, we have a story on file sharing around the world. File sharing via BitTorrent is incredibly popular. It allows users to swap files with each other without going through a centralized server. While being an efficient method for trading, it is also a good way to evade snooping by governments or copyright holders. But somehow, researchers were able to do a large-scale analysis of some torrent traffic. How did they get the inside scoop? This is actually really cool. They created a program called Ono, and what Ono does is it accelerates your BitTorrent download speed, which is nice if you've ever tried to download anything. You know how long it takes to download an HD movie, for example. And so what users who used Ono had to do was consent to turn over some of their data to the researchers. And all this was done anonymously. And they used a computer program 
or a computer algorithm rather, to scramble the data they received. So users using Ono had increased download speeds, but they didn't necessarily have to reveal to the researchers how they were using BitTorrent. But promising anonymity and not looking at the content, doesn't that limit the analysis they were able to do? The researchers actually were able to determine what the content was just based solely on file size. And when they put these pieces together, what were the researchers able to find out about peer-to-peer file sharing? Well, there was a number of trends that they were able to kind of delve into. One is that people are creatures of habit. Users tended to upload the same types of files and host a similar subset of files. The other was that there's actually a correlation between country and what types of files people are downloading. They found uh, users in the United States were more likely to download music. Users in other countries of lower socioeconomic status tended to download movies preferentially. Was the study designed with copyright enforcement in mind? Is that what they were looking at? No, actually, they were mostly interested in improving P2P file sharing. In what way? Just by improving download speeds and making the whole system run smoother. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, David? We've got articles covering all the Nobel Prize announcements. Kelly Cervik has a nice article giving a breakdown of what Ebola does inside of human bodies. On Insider, Jeff Mervis has a great story detailing an ongoing battle between the National Science Foundation and the House Science Committee over the allocation of grant money. So be sure to check out all these stories. Thanks, David. Thank you. David Schultz is an intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. As part of a special issue on robots, Dennis Normile and several other science staff writers explore the social life of robots. While today's common robots, like Roombas and welders, are mostly perceived as unglamorous devices, the quickly approaching era of human-like robots may complicate our relationships with these autonomous machines. Dennis is here to give us a tour of the outer reaches of the human-robot interaction. Being here in Japan, I've interacted with a lot of different kinds of robots in different situations over the years. I've met Ashimo, the Honda robot that uh, walks around on two legs. We have a, a Roomba, the vacuuming robot that runs around on the floor and sucks up dust. Nothing quite prepares you for dealing with the kind of humanoid robots or androids that Hiroshi Ishiguro and his team are developing in Osaka. I walked into a laboratory where I knew I was going to be meeting a female android called Geminoid F. But still, when I walked into the room and I came up behind it, it jumped a little bit in its chair as if startled. And its being startled startled me. Then I came around in front of her and there was a really unsettling moment or two where I was not really sure if it was a robot or a real human. But then the movements are not entirely natural, and the eye contact is a little bit off the mark. So after a moment or two, I realized this is not a human. This is an android. And researchers have been experimenting with this interaction between humans and robots for for years. But a lot of their conclusions have been surprising even now. So for example, some people would actually rather deal with a robot than a human. When does that happen? 
One of the things about dealing with robots that initially you think is surprising, but if you think about it a little bit, it shouldn't be so surprising. If you've ever gotten lost walking around the city or driving, do you hesitate to ask someone for directions, or do you immediately jump up to the next passerby and say, where is this building or that building? Where is the corner of this and that? Many of us would prefer, for whatever reason, to figure it out for ourselves rather than approach a stranger. And in the experiments, it's actually been a series of experiments that Hiroshi Ishiguro and his team have carried out at apartment stores. They had one of their androids basically function as a sales clerk. And they found that a lot of people walk past the human sales clerks in order to talk to the android. Part of it was that it was a novelty. You know, there was a sign that said, this is a robot, come interact with the robot. But they also figured out that part of it was that people who approach human sales clerks are a little bit defensive because they know the sales clerk is going to somehow exert some subtle pressure for the customer to make a purchase. And they did not feel that kind of subtle pressure when talking to the Android. So how did the Android do in terms of sales? It actually did not do as well as the best human sales clerks, but it did complete some sales. The team also suspects that a lot of customers would get information from the Android about a particular sweater that was on sale, would then go other places in the department store to do some comparison shopping, and then come back and make the purchase. Because during the time that they had this trial going on, the sales in that department went up by 50%. There was something that was increasing sales, even though that Android itself did not make so many sales. What we're talking about here and in the special issue as a whole is the social life of robots and how they're going to fit in with society as they become more popular or more present. What other roles might they take on besides what we're talking about here, which is sales clerk? What roles they will eventually take on, I think, really remains to be seen. There are two sort of big directions that are already clear. As we describe in the story, within months, if not within days, two major corporations will be putting robots on the mass market. One is Intel, and the other is SoftBank, the big Japanese technology conglomerate. Their robots are intended to be personal companions that will be used within the home. Supposedly, the SoftBank robot called Pepper will be able to recite stories to children, for example, and play games with adults. The Intel robot supposedly will be able to fetch beer from the fridge, something which I would make use of if I had a <laughs> robot. But an important point is that both of these robots will accept programming from third parties, which means that independent developers will be able to write programs to control those robots. And so these robotic platforms are basically harnessing the imaginations of a whole lot of people who have ideas about how robots might be put to use within the home. The other major stream, and this is the direction that most of Ishiguro's team is pursuing, is using social robots in more institutional settings. They are thinking of robots that will work as assistants in nursing homes, for example, to assist the elderly, carry out your daily tours. They're thinking of robots perhaps being assistants in, for example, supermarkets, where they might carry baskets for the infirm or the elderly and to help customers find what they're looking for. But again, what roles will ultimately prove most valuable for society, I think remains to be seen. As you point out in your article, 
People treat robots like animals or even like other humans, including mentally assigning to them certain rights and responsibilities. How did this tendency show itself in some of the research that's been done? This is a, a very interesting topic, I think, and there are several groups that have investigated this. Collaborators working with Ishiguro's robots looked into this by having a robot that was, in fact, controlled remotely by a human, although the human participants in this experiment were unaware of that. The robot and the humans would play a game. In this particular case, it was a game of scavenger hunt. The robot and the human were in a room that was filled with art and bric-a-brac, an aquarium and various objects that you might find in a home. And the participant was asked to find seven items, at least seven items, on a list. The robot was supposed to keep track and count how many items the human participant identified. So that even if the human found the seven objects, the robot would say, no, you missed one. The humans reacted as if the robot was consciously cheating and was, in effect, doing something immoral by cheating. If you had, for example, a vending machine that didn't give you the proper change, you would never say that the vending machine had acted immorally, but people were assigning that kind of capability to robots. On the other side of the coin, in terms of rights, again, another group that collaborates with Ishiguro, they had robots interacting with children ranging from preteens to about the age of 15, I think, examining the contents of a room, playing a, a little word association game, suddenly a moderator would interrupt and order the robot to go into a closet. The robot would object, you know, say, we're having fun, I don't want to go into the closet. But the moderator would order the robot into the closet. And the human participants, most of them, in interviews later, would say that the moderator treated the robot unfairly. Even though the, the robot is a, an entirely mechanical thing, the human participants believed that it should be treated in a fair manner. Where does that leave us then? Will people start to feel differently about robots once they become more ubiquitous? It's quite possible, as one of the people I interviewed suggested, for many of us at the moment, our image of what robots are capable of is heavily influenced by movies and science fiction stories in fact, it's going to be decades before robots have the capabilities of, say, R2-D2 of Star Wars. And once people interact with the robots that are going to be coming on the market in the next few years, there probably is going to be a realization that the image we have of robotic capabilities from the movies isn't going to match the reality. And so our feelings about what robots can and can't do and how much they are capable of is likely to change once robots become more common. Dennis, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you, Sarah. It was uh, great talking to you. Dennis Normile is a contributing correspondent based in Tokyo. He writes about robot relations as part of a special section in this week's issue. To read more about the social life of robots, visit www.sciencemag.org special slash robots. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. 
You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science Site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.